this is Auteur Detour, wherein three film lovers travel through the filmographies of cinema's most important directors in hopes of finding a greater understanding on the other side. Ready? Three, two, one. Normally I do that on. You already did it backwards. <laughs> You're starting backwards. <laughs> I'm gonna do this backwards. Are we doing it again? Welcome to Autor Detour After Dark. <laughs> We're recording this one late night. Yes. Uh, I'm Ian Hinckley here as always with Travis White. Hello. And Chris Palaza. Good evening, all. And we're here talking about Coen Brothers movies up to this current classic, No Country for Old Men. Uh, it follows... Um, oh, shit, I know the characters. I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, well, Ed Tom Bell play, is played by Tommy Lee Jones as the sheriff of a Texas town. Uh, Anton Sugar is Javier Bardem as an unstoppable force of killing or death or evil, or we'll get into it. And... Uh, Llewellyn Moss is um, played by Josh Brolin as a hunter who happens across a drug deal gone wrong, uh, lots of dead bodies scattered everywhere, and a big pile of money in a briefcase, which he makes off with. And the rest of the movie is basically Anton Chigurh trying to get that money from him, as well as a pack of Mexicans trying to get back, get that money from him. And Ed Tom Bell kind of cleaning up the wake, but also mostly commenting on the dismal tide that is following and growing in the Texas landscape. Uh, we don't have to get too much into the plot right now because I want to get into it as we go. But um, I love this movie. Yes. Chris, what do you think about this movie? Love this movie. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. Oh, can't wait to talk about this one. Uh, I, I have a feeling Travis feels a little bit differently, though. I see that look on your face. No, I was just kidding. I love this movie. This is, okay. <laughs> this is no, I was going to say, you guys it. know me. I'm sorry. How do you feel about it? Ian? you just mentioned it, but what, what you want to say? No, I, I fucking love it. It's like, for me, it's, you know, ushering in like a completely different level of filmmaking for the Coen brothers, where it's like, if Fargo sort of cemented them as like the indie um, auteurs of their era, then this one really solidified them as like, in my mind, as like the real, like next generation of like, I don't know, masterful auteurs, like in a different way, like the way that you think of a Hitchcock or a Scorsese or like not even like a, I don't know, like it's a different level to me, like above indie cinema even. Totally. I mean, you guys know me and I'm a big fan of uh, like a mystery kind of a movie. And this movie's not an actual mystery. It's pretty clear what's happening at all times. But this movie, I think, respects the audience more than almost any movie I've ever seen. And by that, I mean some director, I can't remember who said, when you're making a movie, don't give them four, give them two plus two and make them put it together. And this movie does that 
throughout the entire film. I swear to God, I've seen this so many times and every single time I've found something I didn't see before. Like this time, for example, I didn't ever notice that he's a poacher. Like he's putting uh, the guns up in, in the beginning of the movie and the, underneath his trailer and there's mm. the pelts. I never, for some reason, didn't put it together. He's like poaching right. these Ill animals illegally. I had no, yeah, yeah. it's not like, a th but it's like, it gives you a little bit of an insight as to the character early on, right? And it's this movie's full of that kind of thing. And so if you watch really carefully, it really rewards the viewer uh tremendously and it's just like it's just such an amazing movie I, it, it, for me it's a hard movie to have multiple rewatches of like it's not a i mean this time that i watched it i was less truly like affected by it in, as opposed to some of the other times when i've watched it where like it changes my mood for the week like it's so fucking dark travis you go though uh, what was your uh, experience with it in the past and now and whatever? Well, you might be interested to learn that the first time <laughs> I, mean, I saw really this movie. This. <laughs> well, you, you know, Jenny and I both uh, work in the film industry. Um, <laughs> you guys wouldn't understand, but, uh, you know, we're like a family in a lot of ways. Um, no, we got randomly somehow. I don't know how it worked out, but like Jenny has some contacts that. San Francisco Film Society or something like that. And there were some free tickets to like a early screening and stuff like that. They, they just, the studio gave away. I think they were, I don't know if they were like, wanted like feedback or something like that. But it was an audience definitely not of like all people from the Film Society. It was just like um, riffraff off the street. Because this was like a hootin' hollerin' audience that was like, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was... Um, very noisy throughout, like, the very quiet film, you know what I mean? So it's, like, kind of an interesting yeah. experience. Um, I actually saw uh, The Man Who Wasn't There in similar circumstances. That was at a film festival in Santa Barbara where I went to college. Oh, wow. And it was, like, the opposite end of the spectrum, but just as obnoxious. It was, like, all <laughs> old people laughing super hard at every little, Ugh. you know, smidgen oh, of humor God. to, like, make sure we all, like, heard how mm -hmm. hard they were affected by See, each See, I joke. thought you were going to go the other way because my least favorite thing about seeing something at, like, that kind of erudite film festival kind of crowd is when they, like, won't, like, engage with the movie in any kind of way. You know, right. we talked a long time ago about, like, how like my view of like film as a medium is like the gathering, same thing with theater of like gathering around a light and having somebody tell you a story, like from like primitive fire, you know, ages to now, like it's still being passed on. And like, I hate it when it's literally like you go in and it's just like, I've been to a lot of film, film festivals also. And people are just like studying the movie and like think that they're like, I don't know, fucking smart and like trying to like reach into it. I don't know. I'm an asshole. So but you like, sit, you you sit with people. They don't say anything, <laughs> and you're like, "Fuck these people!" Just I'm these like, you guys think you're so much better than me. You just in the middle of the movie, you just stand up. I know what you're thinking. I know what you think about me. Yeah, and I was watching fucking Pee Wee's Big Adventure. No. Yeah. Um, um, no, th anyways, this is so like, yeah, yeah just like some really like obnoxious chuckles that just like really made it hard to enjoy the movie. Um, but I still really liked it and I still really loved, uh, this movie when I saw it in theaters, it did stick with me in a way that, well, I'll just say like responding to a couple things you said, Ian, it does feel like a timeless classic film. And the mm -hmm. fact that it's like in this kind of very like 
uh, normcore aesthetic of like uh, East Texas of like the eight like, early eighties or something like yep. yeah um, it's eighty it's like impossible to place though it could be like really any era from like a pretty big swath definitely of time. as far as the aesthetic is concerned just because yeah. like they they mention it in the movie they make you do right. math uh, no, to figure it out too right like and that's another thing one of my points well, you it's know twice the coin it's actually. Just to have a little Easter egg here, or not an Easter egg, but like a little thing to get into if we want to. But the uh, he mentions the coin being from 1958 and that it takes 22 years to get to this spot. Right. Uh, also, fuck me. What's her name? The wife. Carla Jean's. Carla Jean's mom dies, and on her gravestone it says 1958 to 20 or to 1980. So like uh. the, her lifespan is the same as that coin's in that moment. Which may be just like a throwaway little thing that they threw in there, or that Cormac McCarthy threw in there. But uh, so it says she's twenty two yeah. years old when she died. She looked. You said he's fifty eight to, to nineteen eighty. I mean, she's only twenty two. <laughs> Maybe, she, but the she point I think you're saying that it said she, she died great. in nineteen eighty, so it tells you what year it is. Basically, I think, I think, yeah, I think she was. I don't remember. There was something in there. She definitely was not twenty two. The point is, <laughs> it's a timeless looking movie, and it felt yeah. it felt like they were going for like kind of a timeless feel, and they were really constructing something that like didn't have a lot of the same. Um, kind of goofy um, flourishes that a lot of their other movies have. They come close to it a few times and you're like, the no, 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 don't do yeah. it. Yeah, that was the one moment in the theater where like, you know, all the like, you know, the real time kind of like gunplay puts you on your the edge of your seat. But mm. nothing made me more tense than when they kind of threatened to break the spell of their own movie <laughs> than when they filmed those mariachi guys with the camera kind of like craning down. Right. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, it's too I funny. I had the same and then, feeling. And then I, I stopped and I was like, oh, thank God, thank God. So it um, gave me like a hard with, so with that, was- that moment and the Carla Jean's mom moment where she's like an over-the-top Cohen's comic character in a lot of ways, the way that she's like, I don't know. She's she just she a straddles the line mm-hmm. between yeah. like and believably obnoxious I had, I had and those, like comedic, yeah. like uh, mad TV character. Um, <laughs> exactly. But like she, she uh, but yeah, so it's a timeless looking movie and it sticks with you in a way yeah. that you don't have to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do yeah. think it actually is fun to rewatch because it's like, to me, I mean, I remember at the time, like this came out the same year as uh, There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. And people were like, which one do you like more? And I was like, you know, I thought There Will Be Blood was like, like Citizen Kane level of filmmaking. And I, mm-hmm. and I thought this would be like, this was a great thriller. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, I kind of thought they were very hard to compare, but this felt more like a, like a genre movie, you know, in the best possible way, than like um like a like a real like art movie like um there will yeah. be blood. But I'm just saying like and I can go back and watch this now. Like I watched it I didn't need to watch it for years, but I just watched it like a month ago and I was like it was so good and it was so much fun to watch. And even though it is dark and, and affecting and upsetting, it is like a great ride. And then I was like really excited to watch it again and yeah, just as good like watching it a month later. I first saw it at Sebastiani Theater, and I went by myself. I don't know why. Loser! Um, Maybe because you'd yelled at everyone else watching the movies with you about <laughs> how pretentious they were. The I was married at the time. I don't know why Danielle didn't come with me, but, uh, you know, I definitely saw it with her also, but I remember seeing it the first time by myself and walking home from the theater um, just feeling like complete, like, garbage like just feeling like oh we are truly fucked like the world is not okay and just like i mean in a good way like that's you know 
I, you laugh, but like it is like effective. How in a good, and, but how in a good way? What do you mean? To go, you mean like the movie was good? The movie was effective in the way that like it was so powerful to me that like I was rocked to my core. Like right. that's what was good. So about not a good. It. Way. I didn't not in a good way. Like oh, I'm glad I feel like this. Right. But just like right, holy right. shit! How often do you see a movie that like gets you like that? It's so know? funny. Like, yeah. Really no, totally you. Ru- ruins your life. Yeah. Yeah. Not, oh, yeah. Not often. Just rips your soul right out of your body. I love it. It's a great feeling. No, I remember when I saw it too. The very end. Uh, one surprised the living shit out of me because it's just this cut to black, right? And then mm-hmm. I remember. Most movies, I just kind of, you know, I'll let the credits play a little bit and I'll just like, you know, look around. This one, I forgot that the credits were even going until like the very end because I'm just sitting in my seat Mm. like, what did I just witness? What did I just experience here? This is one of those few movies where that's actually happened that I can recall, you know. Uh, You're right. Just it lingers with you. I even when I rewatched it, the same effect, of course, doesn't uh, wasn't there this time. But uh, I had to rewatch the end a couple of times just to to really let it sink in um the ending's something i'd like to talk with you guys a little bit more about maybe we touch on that later but there's a lot of stuff to cover Um, in this movie because i do too yeah where do we start it's worth mentioning about the ending is that like and the rest of the movie is that this is their first adaptation of a book and um it's, you know, Cormac McCarthy is obviously a dark <laughs> writer and he writes a lot of fucked up books and this is, you know, uh, one of them. And it's, I read the book after I saw the movie um, and, you know, I, even if I hadn't, it's well documented that like page to screen, it's like almost identical. Like there's very little that is in the movie that's not like word perfect on the, in the book. Which is incredible because, like, there's so many, so many parallels to their other films in this movie. Like, it's so closely, Absolutely. it's like an over, a perfectly overlapping Venn diagram right. uh, to their whole really world crazy. view. And it's like, uh, yeah, it. talking about circles, but like, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well said. And, you know, I mean, I have a theory about that because we can just get into, I mean, this can be another meandering conversation because. But you didn't think can, about it while you watched the movie, did you? Like, some pretentious about, snob. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> no, you don't know what I mean. I just mean like people that like are like not in the movie with the movie. They're just like trying to analyze the movie too much. Yeah, it's like other people are like ants or like animal, like less than human. But you're like you're a human. Like I know that. Feeling. Right. You get uh, yeah. it. Um, so uh, my thinking about what you were talking about a second ago and also what you've brought up in the past about like how a lot of their movies, especially starting with Raising Arizona, like definitively, but like it happens throughout their filmography about like a minor discretion or, you know, or an act of... Um, Transgression is the word I use. What did I say? Aggression? <laughs> uh, discretion? <laughs> discretion? Discretion? Right. Dissection? I used the wrong words. I'm not smart. Uh, a transgression... But, you know, it can be worse than that. It, it um, just needs to rhyme. That's the important thing. A um, aggressive <laughs> transgression can, um, uh, I digress, um, happen. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Happens and um, it unleashes this sort of, you know, unstoppable evil into the world. You know, it's the uh, Leonard Smalls character in Raising Arizona. This yeah. one... I was completely on 
bored with that because it is such a constant in their movies and it is that in this but the thing that's interesting to me watching it this time with that in my head is that this movie opens with Anton Sugar and it opens with him arrested for something that we never find out what it is for and he you know strangles this cop to death in like a complete like monster movie like creeping up to the camera like just pure evil you never see him get this like manic for the rest of the movie where his eyes are bulging out of his head as he's like choking the cop with his handcuffs and it's like the evil is there before he does the <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> transgression like it's there and to me the thing that I really took away from this movie as far as what we talk about in this podcast is like if there's a bigger parallel even it's the big Lebowski because if the big Lebowski if the dude in the big Lebowski is this like avatar for like a tumbleweed rolling through life and everything's sort of um happening around him but he has the same sort of like fuck it like I'm the dude kind of attitude like this movie is Anton Chigurh like as this like vision of death that's impending for everybody no matter who they are whether it's like Woody Harrelson or Steven Root or Llewellyn Moss or like anybody is like you know, the fucking gas station attendant, like everybody that comes into contact with him is like the opposite of the people who come into contact with the dude where it's just like, um, oh, like I'm I'm witnessing instead of life, it's like death. Like it's like, I don't know. It's, I feel like like those are the two characters that like represent the two sides of the Coen brothers um, battle for whether they're, happy about being alive or not happy about being alive i don't know does that make sense to you well yeah i mean i don't i don't think that their view of the world necessarily makes them happy or not happy to be alive but like i i guess what you're saying is like you know they're that they represent their kind of like what what is joyful about being alive and what is like right. horrifying about being alive exactly um, exactly well Thanks. so i think it's interesting that you bring up the fact that sugar exists it, at the beginning of the movie and then you hear also Tommy Lee Jones his voice over like Tommy Lee Jones in this movie kind of starts out like at the end of a career that maybe I imagine like Marge Gunderson had <laughs> like she where she saw right. some truly dark stuff that like shook her to her core and now she's like having trouble like at a certain point like going on with her life mm-hmm. like um uh, this career of like facing down crime. They are very parallel characters. I yeah. feel like Mark like, Anderson. I feel like where she ends is where he begins, kind mm-hmm. of only like yeah. with no, yeah. with or at least like <laughs> thirty years from from where she ends. In that exactly, movie. Like, this is, like, just suck every bit of like uh, subcutaneous fat out of her face, mm-hmm. and then you're left <laughs> with something resembling Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. Um, but I also think okay, so it's interesting that Sugar exists in this movie because we'll talk about it a little more. But I don't know that the taking the money from the crime scene was the original sin of this movie. I think the original sin of this movie was the killing of native Americans in like in America. I feel like that is hmm. like, that's the inciting incident. What? And like, yeah, it's, like okay. <laughs> it's like, it's uh, like there's this, there's, there's something about like talking about like the, the hard land of America and like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that, that there's just something in like, in the land 
this yeah. like original sin that is like even though things seem okay like at certain points it's always been here and it's gonna take us all down with it and like we're gonna return to that like kids are wearing mohawks and bones through their noses like the like the natives yeah. are gonna take back the land mm. and mm. uh and the kind of violence that was kind of given out to them doled out to them will be like returned and um yeah that's kind of I don't, I don't I think that's like a background thing. I don't think that's like the like again like the the only it's plot of the film. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like a, a a strong theme though. Well, Chris, I want you to weigh in on all this stuff, but I also really want quickly want to say like I do hear that and I I think that's a different way of saying like my sort of um other take on it which is not just that he's like impending death, but also just like there's a lot of class and money consciousness in this movie. And like, I do feel like it's there, like, or, you know, Cormac McCarthy's or I, I'm just going to put it on the Coen brothers. Cause I don't want to keep giving them both credit, but uh, you know what I mean? Um, they're like, take takedown of like the cruelty in America. And whether you like put that on original sin or uh, I mean, of, of like the, you know, way we treated Native Americans or just like whatever it is that's like got us to this place where there's just the dismal tide of like, we're just like in this fucking dark landscape, you know? Yeah, definitely yeah. a consistent yeah. theme of there is this this present evil. Always there's some kind of evil lurking and we awaken it. And I'm not sure where it comes from or even if it, you know, has a, a source, if it's just always been there. Uh, I never thought about the Native American interpretation, actually. That's an interesting one. But I was just thinking about all the other Coen Brothers films and how this one is actually sets itself apart from the other ones is, for me, the confidence that they're operating on in this one compared to some of the other ones is just next level. They're so confident in this movie that there's no music needed. They don't need to ramp up yeah. any tension with any like swelling score, anything. They're, it's silent. It's silent yeah. and it's confident. Uh, they don't need to explain well, the anything with over... Well, silence is music. With, like, I mean, it, they, they use the silence as music. Like the way that they mix the sound with the footsteps and like, you know, T-Bone... I mean, not T-Bone, but uh, Carter Burwell did add lots of ambient sound like as his score for the movie it's just not musical instruments and I'll, like, it's yes really... totally speaking of that too i remember, i didn't even pick up on the ticking clock at the very end mm -hmm. as like the, that's the last sound you hear even before the the credits roll is the ticking like the ticking of time right like the passage yeah. of of you know of our lives basically uh and i never even picked up on that but yeah it's just full so full of again on the confidence level where there's no narrator like I'm back and this and that so and so said you know there's a few right. like silly movies where there's the narrator explaining everything and there's even like certain you know uh, uh, not subtitles but like captions and stuff there were multiple times in this movie where another kind of maybe uh, lesser filmmaker would have put subtitles or captions like for example when uh, Llewellyn Moss finds the man in the uh, from the, the only survivor from the shootout in the car a guy's like you know agua and he goes you know cerra la puerta hay lobos there's no mm -hmm. subtitle if you don't understand Spanish you don't understand what that what he's saying you know he's like mm -hmm. close the door mm -hmm. there's wolves out here he's like no no hay lobos or whatever and you know there's yeah. just so many uh, like it, it just moves so confidently uh, in a way that their other films uh, I mean, they're confident filmmakers from the beginning. I don't mean to like paint them That's as incompetent. That's what I was trying to say. You know what I mean? I said, like, but it's like that takes it, it to another like a level notch above. You know? Like, and I don't even mean that like to say that like this is for sure already 
my number one because I'm not even sure that it is because I love some of their other, like, you know, confidence doesn't necessarily always mean that it's the best movie, but it does feel like they're just, like, operating on a new level, which is worth mentioning. We're coming off two movies that were so fucking hard to watch that, like, how did this movie come next? Like, It's nice there's, like, three like, or four lo- like layer, uh, years between them, too. It wasn't like they just cranked yeah. this one out back-to-back like they did Lady Killers and, you know, uh, Intolerable this Cruelty. Is, I think this is the lo- biggest break that they'd taken between feature films. And uh, I, I feel like... Um, you know, Ian, I feel like you always have this very personal take on, like, what's going through their minds when they make a movie and stuff like that. And I really try to, like, avoid that. But um, with this movie, I mean, it really seems like... I mean, if you look at their career at this point, it really seems like they, they like, make, like, a masterpiece or they make, like, some amazing statement. And then they kind of, like, spin their wheels for a while. And then it, it can go and, like, it can be really good or it can be, like, a little um, off the mark. You know what I mean? I, they're, you know, it always, like, with a lot of talent and always, like, kind of swinging for the fences in some way. But, like, um, then they kind of get back to basics in a way. And at this point, they had made what 10 movies or something like that they made a lot they made a fair number of movies and the last two were particularly uh egregious i think we can say i well i feel like uninspired like they didn't know what they were going for or they like were going for they were trying to do something new and it didn't feel right so they kind of again return kind of back to basics back to this same kind of like story kind of um structure that they've done before but this came apparently this was brought to them somebody said like hey what about doing a a book on this and i think like you know they're very literary directors they've done like a lot of like literary plagiarism like in their movies and they i think they were like they would they said this is something new that we can do like this is uh we can do a um an adaptation of a book that like parallels our kind of worldview done by a master storyteller. And we can kind of dig in as much or as little as we want to with these like incredible characters. And uh, I think it was just like the perfect vehicle for them. And I think they took the opportunity to say like, okay, we have this great story structure. What if we had like no music? You know what I mean? Like what if we did it just like in this kind of, what if we just kind of did like a free fall, you know, and just like only could rely on like, the way we ratchet up detention, like super, like, you know, very naturally and very, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, brick by brick, as they've said. I don't want to pretend like it didn't take a lot of work to write this movie just because it was such a direct parallel to the book. Cause I'm sure it did. You know what I mean? Like a lot of thought went into the writing besides what they say, which is that like one brother held the book spine open and the other person, you know, etched out the words. But, uh, that being said, I think that it did give like free up, like, a level of directing for them that like made the directing more important than the writing, you know, maybe for the first time because they really just like you, we keep saying it. It was just like, it's a level of confidence, but it's really also a level of just skill. Like it's so fucking powerful. Like, you know, I don't know the pacing, even though it's their longest movie before, you know, Buster Scrubs comes out. Uh, but it's over two hours is the only one that's over two hours. Um, and it's, you know, but it's still like, it fucking moves. Like it doesn't, I'm never like trying to, you know, check my phone or anything watching this movie. It's so fucking just good. But that does go back to like the confidence thing. Like there are long stretches of this movie where there's no talking. There's long stretches where like nothing really happens. You follow the characters like in real time. And it kind mm-hmm. of like, 
you know, you watch Llewellyn like go through all these steps of like hiding the money in the hotel room, which could have been done, which could have been done like in a little montage, like in under a minute. And instead they show you like piece by piece, like how he's going about buying clothes. Like it shows him like, like, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's like the weight of time is on you. Like, and like you were saying, the tick of the clock, there's, they also use utilize dissolves in this movie, mm-hmm. which I, I don't remember yeah. ever seeing in their totally. films. Totally, like, I was gonna say. Uh, yeah. Definitely not. Like almost every scene like uses a dissolve to cut from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple that are very like David Lynch like too, with driving yeah. on the road and stuff. Um, so, and then even the credits have dissolves. Did mm-hmm. you guys notice that? It's yeah. dissolves yeah. from one name to the next, and you're like, I've never seen credits like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, it does so many different things than most movies would. Uh, I mean, the, the, a theme, of course, would be like the opening narration from a character that we never hear any other narration again. But it's also the, like there's no final standoff at all. You'd think there's the good guy and the bad guy. And most movies are going to well, eventually meet at the end. We, you know, we're, we're going to sort of skip around even more than I guess, because I disagree. I think that the final standoff doesn't happen right at the end. But so I think the that the Carla Jean uh, Anton Sugar standoff is like... The the um, what am I looking for? The thesis of the movie, right there, or at least that's like the final, like the the only the first time that he gets sort of um, well, okay, sorry, we can edit this little stammering out. <laughs> Just kidding, but uh, I'm gonna edit out so, most of your performance tonight, and I hope that's <laughs> understood. <laughs> so, um, you know. I mentioned I read the book. The only there's a few yeah, things several that times were different. Ian, we heard. Fuck off. There's a few different things. Wait, there's in a the book, book Ian? that weren't in the movie. This is important. That they changed for the movie. And they were anytime that there was parallels that happened in the movie, which is a, such a Cohen Brothers thing to do, where it's like, you know, at the beginning Anton says, hold still. You know, and then it cuts to Llewellyn saying, hold still. You know, it's like that kind of thing that wasn't in the book. Like, that's a Coen Brothers thing. Um, And the other big change that they made was to Carla Jean, who in the book is like a super religious 19-year-old girl who has almost no authority and no, like, I don't know. She's just like a damsel in distress in a lot of Mm. ways. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the way that they made that final sequence of her where she refuses to call the coin toss. And he's like, you have to call it. And she's like, no, it's not the coin, it's you. And he's like, I got here the same way that the coin got here. I'm just going to recite that scene because it's such a fucking masterful scene. But, like, he obviously kills her. We don't see it. In the book, she ends up calling it, and then he kills her. And it's, like, a thing. But they don't give you that in this movie. And that's a choice that the Coen brothers made to give this guy, this Anton Chigurh, you know, force that they've created of, like, death, of, like, you know... I I don't know. Her character is more... less talked about for this movie than she deserves to be. Because I think that, like, her having that moment of, like... No, like you're you're doing this. Like that's an important moment in the movie. And then as soon as that happens, he walks out and gets hit by a car. Like it's like it fucking rattles him, you know? He even raises his voice in that scene. He's like, you have to call it. Like mm-hmm. he's like, you know, it's 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 a it, that's kind of the only it's not a showdown per se, but it's like it's a confluence of like 
what he's been dealing with that you don't see coming, but then it's like the end of his story arc in a weird way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have an end to his story arc, but it's the apex of his story arc. I love her. And uh, that's really interesting to hear that. Cause I, I was actually thinking watching it tonight, like, um, you know, that all that dialogue between them must've been straight out of the book. Like, you know, that like uh, their relationship must've been right out of the book. Cause I love the two of them together and I really love her uh, you mean character. Llewellyn and, Llewellyn and her. Yeah. yeah not, not <laughs> Yeah. There should have been a spinoff with Javier Bardem and uh, <laughs> the wife <laughs> just like bickering, like call it. Like they just like, you know, every day is like, it's your turn to clean the apartment. Call the call. You still haven't called it. It's been yeah. 10 seasons. Um, but anyway, uh, no, she's great. And, uh, it makes yeah, me want to, makes me want to see train spotting again just for her. Dude. You know? she's yeah. Awesome. She's not in a it's ton her, of movies, but yeah, I yeah. love seeing her. And, uh, yeah, it's funny. Her, her accent's so different. Cause my kids watch brave all the time. You know what I mean? Right. And she's mad at her and she's got oh, her Scottish right. accent. Cohen ain't got no say, so it's just you. You know, yeah, like the totally, super totally thick, buy it. Yeah, you ne- yeah, you almost never not the same person. She, yeah, she's amazing in this movie. There's a lot of just spot on performances. Obviously, I mean, uh, Javier Bardem. I mean, come on, that guy's just like yeah, totally he's best terrifying. Actor. Just absolutely terrifying. I mean, he's always been a good actor, but that one, he's just totally owns the movie. Uh, Remember hilarious, watching, what's creepy. Uh, he's oh, yeah. hilarious. He's the second creepiest performance I've ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, second? Got, that's the other. That's yeah. the third. Okay. That's the third change to the movie from the book is that, you know, his page boy haircut and his like noth- nothing about him is described in the book. Mm-hmm. They only say that like he's maybe more um, ethnic than like Lou Rillen is used to seeing around there or something like it's like alluded to that he's from someplace else mm. but like they don't describe him at all in this he's like a cartoon character the way he looks like he's so bizarre looking but he's also kind of ambiguous looking too like he's not clearly like Mexican you know which he's uh you know he's, he's a Latino of course but you don't necessarily know that and he doesn't look like any of the other characters either right I mean he's definitely yeah. he's, he's he's in his own world he operates on his own you know, his own right. time. He's a ghost. World. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I just think he's death. Like, I think that there's two things that he is. He's like death <laughs> that's waiting for all of us. And he's like, like you said, Travis, like he's this like un- undercurrent of evil that's like in the soil of America. I'm going to bring something else to it. I think he's rhythm. I think he's the soul of the dance. I think he's the beat. No. Uh, <laughs> no, what's the second? What's the first most creepy character? Uh, it's in a um, Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu. It's Klaus Kinski as Nosferatu. Okay. Literally the creepiest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, yeah. oh God, it's, it's a just bold horrible. statement. It's a bold statement. <laughs> Um, okay, so in Raising Arizona, and I've said this, I think, on the podcast before, but I yeah, had this yeah. whole thing when I was uh, writing, like, something after I watched this movie for the first time, like, sort of writing my thoughts on it, and I realized the insane parallels between this and mm-hmm. Raising Arizona, where I was like, okay, it's like this good old boy who, like, commits a crime, but it's, like, not that bad, but somehow it, like, you know, unleashes, like, unholy terror on like everyone in, in on him in his and everyone in his life and it's beyond just kind of what the crime kind of calls for you know but basically he's transgressed some sort of like boundary um and there in all the coen brothers movies or in a lot of coen brothers movies there's this 
kind of like overlapping like matrices of like human values and then like cosmic values. And there's these characters who can kind of like step outside of them or see outside of them. And they try to like, and I think this is why they're drawn to like people who like break the law, right? Stories about people who break the law. So it's like people who are like kind of testing the boundaries of the, of these things. And um, I just think this story is like the perfect version for that. Cause like, I mean, raising Arizona yeah. was like, they had to, you know, it's kind of a stretch to say that, like, you know, if you break this, if you steal a baby, like a um, a Mad Max Thunderdome guy mm-hmm. will come after you. But in this one, like, it kind of makes sense. And then also, like, um, I totally lost my train of thought. But um, well, pass. Speaking of the, um, but no, know, wait. So, second. but in in raising Arizona, though, sorry, the Leonard Small says he basically says like it's like he says like i'm just going off market forces like Mm -hmm. basically i'm just like a tool of the market and in this movie like um what's his name sugar is like he is the market he is money he literally like his you know the money in him go where they're going the same way or something like that they're both kind of like so it's but it but it's it it it's he's like a market force but he doesn't just he's not just pure business like he he destroys people kind of like beyond like what they expect. Uh, like, you know, like what would make sense? Like there's no reason for him to go after Llewellyn's like mm-hmm. widow, but, uh, but he does it anyway. So he's like something beyond. So he like represents market forces, like something we've created, like out, like out of our like systems, out of our markets that we have no control over and doesn't follow our rules. When he goes yeah. to murder people, they're they like they can't they can't wrap their heads around the fact that they're about to die. Mm-hmm. Like ever like he just puts a weapon up to their head yeah. and they're just sitting there like I don't I, what do you do and like and then they yeah. die like never knowing, never understanding. I don't know. I just think that's interesting. Like he's so beyond like any human value no, that they can't even comprehend him. Totally. Ian, I'm he's... so sorry. I interrupted you like ten times. Oh. oh yeah. No, no, and then Chris. I was going to take, I mean, I saw that you were losing your train of thought. I was going to pick it up because that's what I I knew where you were going. Because I think the fact that he uses the coin, (laughs) the coin as a tool so much, not just to flip, but like to unscrew the fucking vents. Mm -hmm. And like, that's his number one toy. He's got a fucking air gun and a coin, like a quarter, you know, like that's what he uses. And it's like, I totally thought about how, I mean, I've already mentioned it, about how much, like, you know, this is an indictment of capitalism, too. And, like, you know, the Stephen Root character, who's unnamed except for, I think, he's, like, the man who hires Carter, who's uh, Carter Wells is Woody Harrelson. He's the powerful man behind the desk. Yeah, Mm -hmm, exactly. mm -hmm. And, like, you know, those two... Carter Wells and Stephen Root, or Woody Harrelson and Stephen Root, uh, to me, were like, it doesn't matter if you have money or whatever. Like, it's going to get you, too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I loved that scene so much. I mean, Woody Harrelson's got a few scenes in this movie, but the scene where he's pleading for his life at the end, he's not even pleading, but he's just like, he's like, you don't have to do this. And he's like, Everybody says that. He's like, you know, it's like, uh, it's so fucking powerful because it's like, even he who knows the score, like, he gets it. He's already explained what this guy is to Llewellyn and he knows what he's in for, but he's just like, you, you don't have to do this. Like, he's like, he offers him like money. Him he offers him $14,000 in sugar. Just yeah, like, exactly. he's just like so amused. He's just like, as if he's like doing any of it for money. Yeah, like, it actually the way makes that he no gets sense. amused with him in that scene is so fucking good because he's just like 
I'm amused at it too. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's a dark scene and it's sad. And Woody Harrelson's great. Like he really pulls off that like scared brave guy like because he's so full of bravado for the earlier part and then when he realizes he's done he's so believably scared and it's just and like, like mad at himself like he's yeah. just like going through mm-hmm. a lot yeah no totally uh yeah it's funny you bring up Woody Harrelson because I was thinking of Anton Chigurh and uh and Woody Harrelson and how kind of different they are in several ways even though they're kind of going for the same thing Chigurh to me we're talking about like what they kind of represent and there's a way like in a way he represents random chaos in a way like chance randomness uh while still maintaining a particular code right where uh He's very superstitious. He's kind of like this particular way, as opposed to Woody Harrelson. And there's a really great scene. Speaking of little details, like I, you don't notice the first time, at least I didn't. But as he's leaving the initial meeting with Stephen Rue, Woody Harrelson's character, he goes, you know, as I uh, approached the building, I counted, you know, a certain number of floors. It's missing one. And I didn't get that uh, the first time I watched it until I went to Las Vegas. And I'm like, oh. Oh shit! There's no thirteenth yeah, yeah. floor. You know what I mean? I stayed on the fourteenth, and the, the the room goes from twelve to fourteen. I'm like, there's no thirteenth floor. So obviously, like yeah. the fact that there's no thirteenth floor just went completely over Woody Harrelson's head. Even though he's the most analytical guy, he can't possibly fathom why someone re- rationally would exclude a particular floor, right? So he's like the ordered. Uh, you know, agent versus the, the the agent of chaos of of kind of random chance in a way. So they 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 kind of set these character traits up in a kind of not diametrically opposed, but are certainly at odds with one another. And uh, yeah, dude, that last scene with the two of them is so intense, especially when the phone rings. With it's silent, right? So anytime yeah. there's a loud noise, like when the the crash happens or the phone rings, and I think it's when Woody kind of like reacts and is kind of scared by the phone. That kind of mm-hmm. betrays him in a way, and I think in a sense maybe yeah. that's what did yeah. the uh, you know what did him in. Really, it's so weird because Shakur's like code of who do we kill and who do who do we not like it's very specific like i think of the the kind of the uh the overweight old receptionist lady like i don't give out that information sir i know like he why respects the he shit out of her, her. like why didn't you just smoke this lady i'm like wait a minute <laughs> is oh, that she why has you a think code he didn't do it she's sticking to it like she's not gonna I do wonder. it she's not gonna bend she's like yeah. no 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 fuck you i'm not doing it he's like i respect that shit peace you know what i mean <laughs> i also think it's funny because it's like that to me is again how people just like can't comprehend the the danger that they're in Mm -hmm. when like if you were listening to your gut and not just like the the niceties of what you imagine society to be you would run the second you saw that guy like he's so terrifying just in appearance Um, well speaking of that is the you know earlier scene i think it's the second scene of the movie with the gas station attendant which is like the oscar clip you know with for for javier bardem yeah it's so friendo you know it's like that guy that guy's performance, I don't know, maybe he's some character actor that's been around forever, I don't know, but uh, he's right. the fucking MVP in this movie. It really seems the like theory. they grab people off the street to like <laughs> yeah. play all the random people that he yeah. meets up with, and they're all so pitch perfect, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so pitch perfect. Like, the fear in his, like, that's what you would do if that guy walks into your store, is just like... No, we're closer. It's like well, first know, he like tries to make conversation, and it took yeah. him a while to 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 get scared of him. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Because he didn't know. I mean, yeah, that guy walks in. You're not immediately scared when you see him, but the second he starts to get like in his fucking chagrinness, I think he's <laughs> just like, "Why are you asking me that?" <laughs> 
I think I would be scared. I think the people in this movie live like the cows that they like, uh, you know, depend upon yeah. for cowboy boots and meat. Like I, Ron, I think the point of this movie is that like, you know, people just go about their lives like in this kind of like docile way. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who like uh, are, you know, doing something else like the kind of the lawbreakers, like the outlaws, like the cats in that guy's house. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, they're I was just, just not say, oh, used to that know. kind of guy at all. You can, you can tell, like, they've never encountered a human being like that that would just challenge them so directly. There is no like human that being like that. All. And he's like, he's like, uh, I think that, you know, yeah, he, he's somebody I think who sees the hand of fate, like, in a way that we can't, like, our human brains don't mm-hmm. allow us to. Like, right. he is crazy. Like, I mean, what, what did, uh, Woody Harrelson say about him like he has no sense of humor like there's something there's something inhuman about him like the fact that he has no sense of humor like sets him apart from us but I think he understands that like you know that the world we live in is a made up thing like it's it is just a code that we kind of make up in our head yeah and And you see that when he gets like amused by people when they're trying to set it in order yes exactly yeah and he's just like um and he understands that he actually doesn't have control of his life just like no one does. And that he's just like, uh, I don't know, it's uh, like beyond good and evil, I think, uh, is what kind of sets him apart. And there are other characters like that in Coen Brothers movies, like even C. Buscemi, when he watches like Gare, whatever his name is, like mm-hmm. murder somebody. And he was like, oh, I can just kill people. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Um, he's seen like a glimpse of that. But but Anton Chigurh like embodies that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, we should stop talking about Sugar for a no. minute and talk about uh, – there's two other, you know, leads in the movie, which we haven't really talked a lot about. I think that um, Ed Tom Bell is the – I guess you wouldn't call him a narrator because he's not a narrator, but he's the eyes of the book. Like the book is told, you know, through him and then um, also the movie in a lot of ways. Like he's sort of the – I mean, he doesn't, his part doesn't play any role into what happens in the movie. You know, he just sort of comments on it as it's happening a little bit behind, unfortunately. And um, it's more of just in that way, he's the narrator, you know, but like his performance is incredible also. Like I'm not a huge Tommy Lee Jones fan. He's made some of my favorite movies, but uh, you know, Batman forever. And I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, he's he's nobody's ever looked more tired than he looks in this movie. Like, he's so fucking weathered. He just looks great. He looks like, like leather. He's so good in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he really is. And, like, the way that he's... So his character's retiring because he can't keep up with what he sees. Like you said, it's the Marge Gunderson 30 years from now. Because at the end of Fargo, she's like... Uh, you know, I just don't understand it. There's some, there's something that I don't understand in this world. And here he is. He's been trying to fight the good fight for 30 years, but he's just like, it's just gotten away from me. I can't do it anymore. You know? And he's from a family of lawmen that like have all been fighting it for forever. And, uh, you know, his uncle who he goes and visits, that's a crazy scene. Um, I don't know. It's just like, it's the, that's where the title, I mean, you know, the title's in reference to him and, and his story arc, too, of just, like, you know, we can't, like, I don't know, what's his, like, maybe you guys can say it better than I'm trying to right now, but it's just, like, how are you supposed He's to old. maintain with this dismal tide that's just growing and not going away? Like, how are you supposed to keep fighting? Well, it's you know? also, like, him becoming disillusioned with the idea that, like, 
there is anybody who can do it, right? Not just himself. Yeah. Like, in fact, the, the part of this movie is kind of like, you know, this is their first real, is it like their first real Western in a way? Um, like, I, the image where he goes in the room to face Chigurh, who he mm-hmm. thinks might be in the hotel room, mm-hmm. and you think he might be because they are showing mm-hmm. images of yeah, him, like, yeah. out of uh, chronological sequence. Um and he's like so scared, you know, and then he when he opens the door and all this there is like this shadow of himself. Mm-hmm. At, and, but he like looks like a cowboy about to like draw mm-hmm. his guns. But it's this kind of ghost of a cowboy with like that's like fractured because of the yeah. light. And it's like a really beautiful haunting image. And I feel like that's him seeing like the the like the last like image of a cowboy that's just sort of like a fading shadow or yeah. like a an image that's like dissolving before his eyes like sort of like a mythological thing that doesn't really was never real you know totally. and also is still mm-hmm. not real it's also um, the only time he yeah. draws and a gun it's the only time he holds yes, a gun yes yes right because he was like yeah. he didn't want to draw his gun he was I'm like hiding he thought it was you. so cool to thought it was so cool to not have to ever have a gun, right? Mm-hmm. That was his, like, uh, idealized version of a sheriff, you know? Well, speaking of the um, cowboy, you know, uh, the, the other parallel, another parallel that they added to the movie was when Anton Chigurh sits down with a glass of milk and sees his reflection in the TV, and then later, Tommy Lee Jones sits down at the same couch and grabs the same glass of milk and sees himself on the TV and you see both of the reflections in the TV and his is like Chigurh's is really like it's almost like he's seeing like the monster movie character that he is you know like he's seeing this you know horror image on the screen and then he's like seeing like an old washed up cowboy on the screen it's like and you know he's got the dream sequence in the movie we always talk about the Coen brothers dream sequences he describes two dreams one is you know referencing money and then the other one is referencing like uh how you know death's coming for us all you know and it's like it's you know it's another one of those which is crazy that it's straight from the last page of the book because like you said it's exactly what the coens always do i don't know yeah again and the the ending on the dream sequence was straight out of um a very affecting dream sequence like maybe the most emotionally affecting part of the whole movie um, is very, very similar to uh, Raising Arizona. And I know, mm-hmm. I think I brought this Absolutely. up already in, in our Raising Arizona podcast, but um, the the fact that Chigurh takes his gun out to shoot at a bird on a bridge yeah, randomly, dude. just like Leonard oh, Small shoots at the animals on the side of the road, mm-hmm. is a very crazy parallel. And oh, brother, um, right? Yes, yes, that's the right, cows. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not the cows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, you quoted a brother, no! you motherfucker. <laughs> you said. <laughs> I was making fun of it. I was saying it was stupid. Whatever. I saw that smile on your face. <laughs> Betrayed. Uh. <laughs> uh, oh, so let's talk about some other Coens. I mean, oh, we can talk for a minute about Llewellyn Ooh. Moss also, because um, I think it's interesting that he, you know, potentially could have gotten off Scott free if he hadn't gone back to give the dying guy in the truck water. Why do you right, say that? Right. And again, why do I say he that? He had the money with the transponder, and they still would have found him anyway, wouldn't they? Well, unless he would have found the transponder. I mean, in that time. You, yeah, maybe, maybe. But yeah, I, I was wondering about that scene too. What were you gonna say? 
They get him. They oh, certainly get him faster because he went back. And I mean, again, that is somebody who has a code that they have to live by, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they see themselves in a certain exactly. way, in a certain moral framework. And even though he's an outlaw, he has like yeah. decency to other people. So in yeah. the middle of the night, he's like, "God damn it, I have to do that thing." And again, that's yeah. the thing that like Shigur would like laugh at. You know what I mean? Like it's like he just right. makes up this thing that he has to do, which. He, and even he, he knows it's it. stupid. It is he decent. literally says... Yeah, he's like, this is a really dumb thing, but I have to do it anyway. And mm-hmm. then uh, that kind of dooms him from the beginning. Because also, you know, remember, it's not... I mean, Shigur does not kill Llewellyn. It's the Mexicans that kill Llewellyn. Right. Like, it's, you know, those guys are on his trail the whole time, too. And potentially that wouldn't... I mean, there were two transponders, I guess, but... Uh, you know, I don't know. I think it potentially could have played out differently um, had he not done that because, you know, they're there when he goes back. And uh, Yeah, I was wondering the first time I saw, like, why is he going back? It doesn't make sense. But then, you know, so I was like, because he kind of just was cold to the guy in the beginning, but, you know, was like, oh, I'm going to leave your door open, whatever. You know, I don't care. But then I'm like, wait a minute. No, he has a code. He's, he's clearly up, like, thinking yeah. about this. Uh, and then we learn, of course, later he was in Vietnam, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there may still be, like, some trauma about that, you know, uh, at play in, in this character's background and yeah. whatever as well, you know. Um, yeah, it's all these little subtle character details that aren't, like, explicitly but, you stated, know, the but same, on the screen. The same thing that does that is the same, you know, stupidity that, like, gets him killed because he's just got this bravado that he hasn't earned you know what i mean like he's he's he thinks that he's tough shit but like and you know he does stand he's up pretty good he's, like, pretty he's, he's pretty badass i was I'm gonna not like when i was watching it last night i was like or uh tonight i was like i would have been dead in the first five minutes oh you know God. what i mean like he does <laughs> no, a pretty good I'm, job i'm not saying he's not because he's definitely a badass but when he hangs up on sugar when they're on the phone together and like sugar gives his wife an out and he's like, no, like I, I can, I can take you on, like you know, like that's another stupid moment. Where but how? Just, wait a minute, wait a minute. He couldn't, but he's not going to choose. Like, okay, I'll give myself up to die to you. I feel like that's that's a well, choice that maybe makes sense think, to Chigur, but I don't think that's a choice that any human being can walk into. Like, but again, don't you the think other people that, like, couldn't even? He face could have said okay and still faced Chigur, like. If he th- if he literally thought that he was going to kill that he had a chance to kill Chigur, yeah, he could have said. Okay, I'll take you up on that, and then tried to kill Shigeru. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, he's not that. Well, he's not that like wily, right? He's more just like survival mode, like you know what I mean, right. like soldier. He's not like, uh, yeah, smart. You know who I love in this movie? Uh, the deputy, uh, Tommy Lee yeah. Jones. Is, yeah, that he, guy. I always he, he's always great in movies, but this he's is my, always great. Yeah, he's always great, but this is my favorite performance by him. He's totally. so you know so he auditioned funny. for he auditioned for Llewellyn five times <laughs> oh. before it went to Josh Brolin, <laughs> oh. which is kind of a tragedy. Although I think Josh Brolin is perfect. He, in this oh no 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 movie. yeah no one else no one else that guy kind of reminds me of like Fargo's Lou like I don't 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 just don't agree with your uh, police work there Lou he's like the, oh <laughs> yeah. wow yeah, Archie yeah, how yeah, did yeah, you yeah, figure that right. oh good. <laughs> Police working, wow. <laughs> you know, he's kind of like the, the dumb, like, ride-along guy. Uh, the decent but he is man, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, not well, the sharpest tool in the shed, you know. If we're talking about sort of minor characters in the movie, not that, you know, I mean, he's a great character, but uh, Stephen Root's the only character in this movie, that, or the only actor in this movie that they've ever worked with before yeah. uh, this one, yeah. which is so rare for them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know why they, you know, didn't hire anybody from their stable except for him. And he's great in it. I mean, he's so, 
has a tendency usually to just ham it up in a way that works for him anyway, you know, because mm-hmm. he's comfortable in that zone where he's like the ham zone. can pull off the like ham zone. Uh, <laughs> but um, We're all in a way that like most people cannot, like including in Coen Brothers movies, like even when he's like way over the top in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, he's like, you know, yip, 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 doing all that like yip, yip shit. It's like <laughs> screaming it's the N word. Like, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, <laughs> but like, no, love this Stephen one, he's love so dialed down in a way that like I forgot that he was in this movie when I watched it this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he shows up and I'm like, look at him fucking acting his ass off and really just like going, like dialing it down. You know, you talked He's about amazing. in the Fargo episode, you talked about um, how the Coens are masters. Like you, you realize that the Coens are masters because they can tweak their dials. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, and, and, and like, I thought that, that was a really interesting way of putting it because they really tweak their dials down in this one. Like yes. this is if, mm-hmm. if Fargo had been their most naturalistic movie, like this is naturalistic to a fucking actual degree of totally. naturalism. Like yep. it's very natural. And Stephen Root is very natural in this too. Like you have to wonder if they had to like tweak that dial down hard on him. Cause I don't know. He's really like, no, just thinking about that just, too. How, you know, how we talk about themes and, no one repeats anything that someone else says or anything in this movie, which would be the way a normal thing goes, right? It's kind of yeah, unnatural yeah. for characters who've never met one another to say the same, like, what kind of man are you, you know, or exactly. whatever. The only yeah. times it happens is that, like, hold still moment. Right, when, right. When they both oh, are yeah. That but that's more of, like, time. parallel, you know, uh, mm-hmm. rather than, yeah. like, a, a, a repeated right. motif exactly. throughout the movie. Speaking of, in Stephen Root's office, again, going back to, like, people who can't, like just get their head around the idea that they're about to die. The guy who's like, are you going to kill me? And he's and then the a most amazing answer that depends. Can you see me? Mm-hmm. Like which is <laughs> right. my favorite line of the whole movie. I just realized we've been talking for an hour. And That's fine. Let's just keep going. It's totally fine. Let's just keep okay. going. Like, uh, wait, I, speaking of, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they got a lot of their amazing dialogue from the book. I have not read any Cormac McCarthy, but I'm familiar with like a lot of lines and a lot of stuff from mm-hmm. his books, uh, just because they're like out there. Um, but I have seen a couple other Cormac McCarthy movies, including uh, All the Pretty Horses, mm-hmm. and a character uh, gets a gun in All the Pretty Horses, and somebody asks him, "Where'd you get that gun?" And he's like, "The get in place." And right. that exact same line is in the this same movie. Thing. So it's almost like a Coen Brothers thing happening across films. But I think, yeah, I think, guess that's totally. just like that's a line Cormac McCarthy likes, or mm-hmm. maybe they, maybe both those uh, filmmakers. I think took it's also it. a Texas thing. Like that, oh, that's okay. a very Texas okay. thing to say. Yeah, you know, and this movie is very Texas. It seems like, like everybody also yeah, has speaks the... Texas colloquialisms, like mm-hmm. you know, which is like a very Coen Brothers thing to like pull out. So yeah, um, this also you know borrows from blood simple the like texas landscape you know montages almost you know mm-hmm. that are like yeah. i don't know it's it's fucking beautiful to look at like roger deakins is obviously a master yeah this uh, is a beautiful movie compared to like even some of the other ones he shot for them recently which yeah. felt kind of like bland like they were going for kind of like a blandness that just like mm-hmm. you know mission accomplished but like we're yeah. <laughs> really unpleasant to look at and uh mm-hmm. those weird kind of like 
um, CGI like settings in uh, Lady Killers that just kind of like yep. uh, yeah, yeah. were so offensive to me. Yeah, this one's beautiful Looking. without calling attention to itself in any particular yes. way. Like, oh, brother, where art thou is beautiful, but it's like, whoa, this is intense. You know, the filtering and yeah, everything. It's beautiful like, without... It feels like you're watching a movie mm-hmm. for sure. This one, you're right in it. Like I said, like my heart was racing while I saw it in the theater. It's like you were really fucking in it. And, you know, a big part of that is just like Roger Deakins. Like he really like puts you in there in that I don't know. They storyboard out all their movies too. Like the Coen brothers are, are on top of that shit. They're good. <laughs> yeah. The sound editing also really gets you in there. That one in Oscar, this cleaned up at the Oscars. Like you good. said, it was up against, um, there will be blood. There will be there blood. Will be blood. Mm-hmm. Which I believe. What a year that, that yeah. year, man. <laughs> yeah. I, Jesus. I actually heard a story. I'm not sure if this is true. Uh, I don't, I think they were initially, both films were going to be shot around, they were scouting locations around the same place. Like they're looking in California, I think in Southern California. Mm. And I think they both ended up at like kind of battling for the same position. Like, oh, this place yeah. would be great for, no, this place would be great for our movie. And then, you, you know, uh, and the story. No, no. I, about, I, about what? Cause there's a shooting story about that where, uh, they had to stop shooting one scene for a day because the cloud was filled with smoke because uh, oh, that's that's so interesting. Yeah. So they were right next to each other. I mean, they were like, "What a fucking year!" And Dark Knight came out this year. You no, know, the year after. Like, oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. I was bad. actually on my way to go see um, "There Will Be Blood" uh, in December of two thousand seven like literally on my way and I, ha- and I saw my phone and had to tell my wife and our friend who's meeting us that, uh, Heath Ledger had just died. Oh, shit. I think it was, I think it was in December around that time. You know, Maybe January. I forgot to mention it, but Heath Ledger didn't take the part of Anton Chigurh. Oh, he was, uh, he, they, they offered it to him first. Interesting, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. So, well, that's really, that's really interesting because like, obviously he's so perfect for the Joker and it's impossible to imagine anybody else, but Javier Bardem playing uh Chigurh. Mm-hmm. But then Javier Bardem played a complete ripoff of the Joker in the uh, James Bond movie. I was going to say in Skyfall. Uh, Skyfall, which is yeah. like, which mm-hmm. is like beat for beat, a remake almost it of really Dark is. Knight. It's right. crazy. Uh, right. With Javier yeah. Bardem playing like uh kind of a, combination basically of uh sugar and the joker and like kind of like a mama's boy i don't know yeah i don't know i mean i thought obviously heath ledger was a fucking brilliant actor and i wonder what he would have done if it would have you know he didn't take this role and then he took the joker later so i don't know if he would have done a joker thing with this role Mm -hmm. i think maybe the dead eyes of bardem wouldn't have been there you know like so maybe I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine anyone else in this part. It's like I love was... Javier Bardem so much in it. I can't. Mm. I don't want to stop thinking about him in this movie. The I other almost... actor that was mm. almost it was Mark Strong. Do you know that? Yeah, actor? yeah, the British guy. No. Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, yeah British guy. Yeah. You'd recognize him. I he's think in he's in Guy Ritchie. Ritchie. He's in like a million Guy Ritchie movies. <laughs> I don't like yeah. that. I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, Bardem, Bardem got it and was you know brilliant. He's he he uh, auditioned for the role or they offered him the role and he said you know. Uh, I don't drive, I don't speak good English, and I hate violence. And they're like, perfect. Like, I don't care if you're perfect for it. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was uh, um, Yeah, he was pretty intense in this movie, beautiful. And I was like, this guy's got a real, like, yeah, presence to him. Movies. He's, like, pretty, like, the movie's not, like, one of my favorites at all. But I was, his performance in there was really, like, 
wow, he's a really magnetic kind of a character, and he brings a little bit of that to the the role of Sugar. I can't imagine Heath Ledger playing oh, him so unless much. he really like changed his face a good bit because he's a little like too good looking almost to be like a creepy looking guy without the maybe the facial scars and the makeup. I don't know. I can't see it, but. That doesn't mean he wouldn't have done a good job. The guy's a hell of an actor, but, right. you know. Maybe a little bit of the Australian accent or something, too, would have thrown his character into a little Ooh, bit of, like, yeah. a weirder kind of, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah who the hell is this guy? I don't know. Um, what else? Oh, we should talk for a minute before we wrap up about, uh, shit. I guess I was going to say, like, motifs that the Coens always come back to. You know, we talked about cyclical stuff. There's, the coin is a circle in this, um... You know, they there's a shot in it where it like fades away from the coin and into a rock, and it's like I don't know. There's that's the only real circle thing that's in this movie that I can think of, but it's definitely like a running thing throughout it. You know, mm-hmm. I just I don't know. something that stood out to me that I hadn't really mentioned before was uh, they use violence in their movies. You know, uh, Fargo oh, specifically. Thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to talk about that too. Yeah, I, I was thinking about you know. Violence is never glorified, particularly in their movies, especially this one. I mean, you think of Fargo, like one of the most iconic scenes where it's like this bloody wood chipper well, spitting out Simple red. like the burial scene. Totally. And, the, and it's, you know, it's, it's like a terrifying... Walsh's hand scene. Yeah. And like, they, they don't seem to glorify it. And this one especially is a real... Uh, it's like an expose on like how... like you can feel the effects of violence. There's multiple close-up scenes from multiple characters. Like, like Llewellyn Moss takes off his shoes and you see his like, terrible-looking yeah. feet. They're just so jacked up. He's picking debris out of his, like, buckshot-laden shoulder. Yeah. And he's like, ugh. I, I totally meant to talk about Shiger, how you visceral know? the, like... Uh, violence, but not just mm-hmm. the violence, but the like the aftermath, in this the, movie. Aftermath, the aftermath of the violence. It's not just like, like not a, something like, movies like focus on. Like exactly. right, this movie just like it's real. So much time watching them clean their wounds. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, like Shigeru's like the close up of him injecting himself to like numb the pain, and he's like pulling the thing. You know, uh, the bone you know, sticking out of his arm at the it. end. I, it's just a real. My favorite scene, besides maybe the gas station scene in the movie, is the shootout uh, in the hotel. That's played like completely silently. And then, I mean, you know, music wise, but you just hear those footsteps and the gunshots and like the tension. You see his shadow walk up to the door. It's just like, it's so fucking tense. It's just fucking brilliant filmmaking. And then, like, you know, there's that violent scene. That's what made me think of it of like when he gets, he purposely crashes the truck so that Sugar thinks that he's dead. And then he gets in. Uh, I guess this was before he gets in the uh, passing truck and like he's like okay I'm not gonna hurt you I just need you and immediately the guy's fucking neck blows out and it's just like gurgling blood Mm. it's so brutal it's horrifying and brutal and it also like shows like again he doesn't want mean to do anybody any harm he's like this is like a victimless crime right of taking his money from like just a bunch of dead guys who botched a drug deal but from the very first, like from, almost from the when he kills the dog, it's just like already like yeah. innocent right. lives are being going to be taken, and then it's like wherever he goes, people die, innocent people die. The hotel yeah. clerk dies in that sequence. The guy in the truck dies in that sequence. I think it's really important, to sh- like for the movie, you know, it's saying like you sh- you know you shouldn't have done this, man. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but I also I know yeah. I also yeah. think uh, you know the 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 thing I was saying about like this violence that's like coming back to America, like to haunt mm-hmm. America. So many of the characters are like war veterans too, and it's sort of like right. they're bringing their ex war expertise home to like uh, back home to like you know, and they're like, and then the guy uh, says to um, Tommy Lee Jones like, it, 
it's a war. I don't know what else, what else you can call it. It's a war. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about like the violence that's happening between these people looking for the money. And uh, yeah, I don't know. They say like the last, uh, you know, I don't know how, you know, much of this is really in the movie, but um, just something that I've been thinking about lately, the last uh, sort of like forefront or the last frontier of like a colonial nation or like a imperialist force is like home is back home. You bring the troops home and then th- that's who, you, you know what I mean? That's your the people like who are reaping the benefits of like uh, yeah. colonialism, imperialism are the, the final victims of it. You know what I mean? Like basically if you're not like at the top, like you're going to end up the victim of it, whether, you know what I mean? The, the just the theme of like chickens kind of coming home to roost. Yeah. And they definitely do in this movie. I mean, you don't even see Llewellyn die, you know, mm-hmm. which is again with the aftermath. You kind of don't feel it when you more... see his you kind of don't see feel it when you see his body, but when you see his wife's face, it's just like, "Oh god, yeah. do you remember that?" Yeah. I was shocked when I saw it in the theater and you just pull up, you see Ed Tombell pull up and see that he's dead. I was just like, "How do you not?" But again, that's Talk about confident filmmaking. That's like totally. I think it's in keeping actually too with the actual theme of this of uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character, and he's constantly lamenting the constant, unexplainable, shocking stuff that keeps happening in the world. We as the uh, uh, the the audience are shocked to find wait he's just dead off screen like he's killed yeah. like we encounter him as bell encounters him and it's just another sen- senseless violent act right which is really in keeping with sort of the theme of the movie where you know we're living in this world where chaos reigns now and there's nothing we can do about it the surprise so, he's like vivian yeah. lee in uh in psycho in a way it's like so we what? can wrap up now? the actual movie and then rank him but um i think with that being said like sugar gets in the car accident and has to you know, at the end, he gets slammed, T-boned, you know. And uh, do you know one of those actors, those young kids, is Caleb Landry Jones? Who's that? He's a great actor now. He's you, You'd recognize him as the um, creepy psychopath brother in Get Out, and he's... he's oh, yeah. Okay. He's in Twin Peaks The Return. Okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So he was, he was the second kid that's like... You know, give me that half yeah. of that's mine, whatever. You yeah. Many uh, <laughs> was just a kid, but anyway. So like, you know, that's a, another pair of people that Sugar doesn't kill, and you don't really, you know. I mean, it would have been pretty fucking harsh if he did. Not that he is above being harsh, but as a viewer, it would have been really fucking hard if he would have killed them after that. But that. It, He's even incapable of escaping the chaos of the world, you know? Yes. Even Shigur, who represents the chaos of the world, is incapable of, like, not existing in that, too, you know? Yeah. Where it's just like, he's in all these life-or-death situations, and then he just gets T-boned as he's fucking driving down the street. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's a fucking dark movie, guys. <laughs> a, dark, a great dark. one. <laughs> but a great one. The great one's always on. Um, so, you know... We're going to end up having to, like, say so many movies. I feel like the oh, Wacko or Yakko from the Animaniacs, like, singing all the names of the yeah. titles. Like, <laughs> exactly. There's, like, 20 movies at this point. It's like, right. So, you know, all of mine are going to be the same. I'll just run through them really quick, except for... Um, I'm just going to read them in order <sighs> off IMDb and just, like, pretend like it's interesting. The f- the hardest part right now is I'm still going to put Fargo at number one for me as a, not as a critical evaluation, but just as like a, my favorite of their movies. Because I think, you know, even though this one does represent like 
a next le- a, a higher level of filmmaking in some ways. I think that that one just I love the characters so much. I love like it's just easier for me to watch. I don't know. Fargo's still number one for me. Then No Country for Old Men, Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, Blood Simple. Man Who Wasn't There, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Barton Fink, Headsucker Proxy, Intolerable Cruelty, and Lady Killers. Wow, I can't remember anything but Fargo. <laughs> you just... Okay. Well, because who cares? You it's know. so many movies, but I, yeah. go You go, Chris. I mean, I'm just going to say my new list is really No Country for Old Men is just dethroned Fargo, but it's barely, barely knocking it out. They're essentially tied in my book. I just really give No Country for Old Men the slight edge because I just really love how uh, it really makes you pay great attention to the detail. Uh, again, I just kind of get something new out of it every time. So they're pretty much tied with No Country for Old Men sitting in the unofficial number one spot. Yeah, Everything I mean, else just got bumped We'll down. see what I say next week like when we're talking because it could easily jump to number one again. I don't know. It's it's right there for totally, me too. Totally. Yeah. What do you think, Travis? Wait, what's your number one, Chris? Sorry, can you say Oh, No Country for Old Men just dethroned Fargo for oh, number yeah. one. But yeah, barely, like cool. I said, it's basically neck and neck. But if I had to put him, you know, in order, it's No Country right now. Maybe because I just saw it again, but it's just so fucking good. Mm. Yeah, I, I still kind of, it's so good. It really, it really is. <laughs> we could have talked, like, I swear to God, like, if I had some more time and we could have, like, listed, like, all the incredible, and if I was into, like, a less sleepy state right now, like, there's so many parallels to their other movies. I really feel like this in some ways is like the ultimate Coen Brothers movie. Even though yeah, it, even though I, it doesn't have all the humor and stuff like that that the like Big Lebowski has. Um I think it's interesting that Ian you were saying like those two movies or those two characters represent so mm-hmm. much of their world because I think in those two movies you do get kind of like their whole filmmaking philosophy. I do too. And I I think if we're talking about it in terms of like what the ultimate Cohen brothers movies are, then I might put big Lebowski and no country for old men as like the tier number one. You almost have to pair them. You almost have to yeah. pair like raising mm-hmm. Arizona and Fargo, you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like, and, or this and that. Yeah. Like even though, and again, if you strip them down to their bare parts and, or adjust the dials, they're almost the same movie. Some of them, you know they what I mean? Really like are. Arizona, yeah. like raising Arizona and Fargo, like raising Arizona yeah. and, and this one, it's, it's so crazy. Anyway, in that spirit, you know, I still have to kind of go with my tiered system. Cause like, it's mm-hmm. so hard to like, um, you know, what's worth more or what bring like is more amazing to me, like the way they pull off like the dream sequences in Big Lebowski or the way they do these kind of like real time kind of scenes in in No Country for Old Men. I'm almost tempted to say No Country for Old Men is my favorite just because it does feel so unique and so instantly kind of classic the way they kind of like yeah. um, lay out these scenes again that seem like not even that much is happening, but the way they kind of play with tension in those scenes and the way they just kind of show you things and the, mm-hmm. and the way the images stick with you, the, the sounds and everything like that. It really is just like a tour de force of like uh, very gent- gentle, like gently rising waves of tension that just crash yeah. on you. Mm-hmm. Um, just an amazing movie. Can I, <laughs> I want to interrupt you really quick before yeah. you keep going. I haven't even listened I do to think, I know, but I do think <laughs> no, that go. like No Country for Old Men is specific to them in that it's the first movie that like, you know, they're so referential in so many of their movies and this one feels fucking brand new. Like I don't even know what, you know, blood simple would not exist without like a touch of evil and like, you know, raising Arizona is like a complete, like, you know, tour de force of like, 
you know, originality, but it's also has so many references to like classic screwball movies and mm-hmm. like, Looney you Tunes, know, Looney yeah. Tunes and stuff like that. This one, like, I don't know what his predecessor is besides the book. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like, it's, it really feels like, it really feels like going it. from a book and like a more, a contemporary yeah. book for maybe the first yeah. time really gave them the opportunity to like do something new. And like, like I said, yeah. just kind of free fall just based on their own skill and not, not be as referential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point. Even though, again, like I think there are these kind of like, these shadows of film noir and uh, horror and Sergio uh, Leone, the, the West, the Western. Yeah. Sergio Leone, mm-hmm. totally uh, like existing over the film. So I think some of that is there too, but, but yeah, that's a great point. Okay. So my first tier is the, the top four basically are this movie, no country real men, Fargo, uh, raising Arizona. And, um, and then kind of at the lower end of that is The Big Lebowski, which is like a, so much wonderful stuff in that movie, uh, even though there's a couple parts that I don't love. Right below that one is The Man Who Wasn't There, um, which I think is like could have easily been one of their kind of just kind of weird. Uh, what's the word? Um Indulgent kind of movies. Where, yeah, yeah. But but it just works so well in so many ways. And it's so um, skillfully done and kind of powerful and to, to me personally at least um so that's like right below that top tier then uh blood simple kind of stands alone kind of uh at the yeah just a great movie right below that and it could this these could switch place blood simple with these three the kind of like miller's crossing barton fink hudsucker proxy which just like they really do bring me a lot of joy even though yeah, i don't sure. think they're like uh like great stories or something like there's something kind of lacking to all of them as well. Um, the more I think about it, I think serious man is going to be like a replay of uh, Barton Fink for me a little bit. Um, hmm. I'm really excited to watch that one, even though I think it's like my, um, my least favorite from of the rest of them that we have to go anyway. Below those are the quote unquote bad movies. I don't think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is a bad movie, but for me it just does not work yeah. as like as well as the rest of them at all. Like it's a big leap from Oh Brother Where Art Thou mm-hmm. to like uh Barton Fink, which is maybe my least favorite of those three I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um and then below those are the actual bad movies, Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers. Yeah. And I really honestly they have been swept from my brain after this movie. Totally. Like, I just feel like they don't exist anymore. We also like, took a week really off. Way. People don't know yeah. this. We're we're recording this in late uh, in 2010. And, you know, <laughs> like, uh, so we're just like casually releasing this. When it, we, when it comes out, it comes out, you know. I can't wait for Inside uh, Lewin Davis. I heard that's going to be a great movie someday. We'll see. When it's we'll, we'll, be, we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> but uh, True Grit's coming out this year, guys. Awesome. Oh, that's going to be a good one. But anyway, so that's my ranking. Yeah, I think they have made a couple bad movies, but I really think with No Country for Old Men, it's like such a powerful reset. And from here on out, yeah. I think we enter a new era of them just kind of like, I don't want to call it no frills, but just like very much like we know what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, they're just like, like yeah. Very like solid. They're old men. They don't need to like mm-hmm. prove anything mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, it's, yeah. Yeah, even their indulgent ones like Kayla Caesar and stuff that are coming up, like, they work better in some ways than some of the other indulgent ones, you know? Or um, they don't. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Like, so... I, don't, I, think the, I think the fun parts of those movies, like, don't kind of reach the crazy fun parts of, like, the Hudsucker Proxy, honestly. You know what I mean? I agree. I think, those, you, I think I... there's something, like, goofy that they, they lose in this new era. 
And I, yeah. but I don't, you know, I think that's just, that's just time. I think that's why I still have Fargo at number one. We can finish this fucking talk. No. But it's just because I like that goofiness so much. Totally. That like, is so specifically Coen Brothers. Yes. And like Fargo's like not a goofy movie, but it's there for mm-hmm. sure. Like, I don't totally. know. In that it's not in this one really. Right. All right, guys. Good game. Pleasure talking <laughs> to you. Until we meet again. See you guys later. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Autour Detour. We'll see you again next week.